Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Jolyon Bromley, who is a anthroposophist and a member of the Pitt Street Uniting Church. Anthroposophy is firstly a word that I struggle to pronounce, but perhaps more importantly, it is the philosophical worldview that was developed by Rudolf Steiner in the early 20th century. As for the Pitt Street Uniting Church, as Jolyon makes clear, it's a centre for progressive Christianity. We had a very wide-ranging conversation, which touched on the universalism of Christ, Jolyon's development in the Baptist Church, his period as an atheist, and then ultimately finding the Anthroposophical Society and the Pitt Street Uniting Church. We spoke about the teachings of anthroposophy, its worldview, and what it sees as the future of humanity. But we started the conversation talking about the Pitt Street Uniting Church and its history, Jolyon's position there now, and his role in their interfaith community. But before we get into it, this will be the last podcast for the year, and so I'd just like to say thank you to everyone for listening throughout the year. There'll be more podcasts next year. I've already got a couple of guests lined up, so that's something to look forward to. And if you have listened to the podcast this year, feel free to leave a review, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, or better yet, recommend it to a friend, perhaps only if you thought it's good, although it depends on the friend, I guess. But for now, thank you, everyone, for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Joylin, thanks for joining me or oh, I guess I'm joining you here today yeah um, and we're at the Pitt Street Uniting Church yes and do you want to just tell me a little bit about the church and what what your role is here okay yeah well Pitt Street Uniting Church sees itself as a center for progressive Christianity which means that it takes uh, it, it's not um, sort of a literal, it doesn't take a literal interpretation of the scriptures. It, it takes quite a, um, um, a contextual approach to, to scripture and things like that. It, seem, it, it tries to be very in touch with the values, uh, the broader ideals, you could say, in the wider society. Things like the Charter of Human Rights and recognizing the the um, equality of all people, the value of um, diverse um, ethnic communities and faiths. It was always very strongly ecumenical. And we've, for the more than, say, last 15 years, we've also had a strong interfaith connection where we recognize that uh, the spirit is at work in other faiths, in other religions, in other communities, but we hold strongly to the the, the Christian sort of um, ethos or the, the the sense of the Christ present with us in the world today. Right, but it's quite an old church itself. The, the building it is. is very old, and yes, uh, I believe it's it's one of the oldest churches. In sort of in Sydney, in Sydney, yes, it is. It, well, the congregation goes back to the eighteen thirties. The building goes back to the eighteen forties, and then it was expanded in the eighteen sixties. And it really started 
as a gathering of nonconformists. Right. So it always had that. It did. Nonconformist element. It did, and it always had a very strong social justice message. And they um, they had a mission at the docks, the Sussex Street Mission. So, um, and this was to to work with. It was a very poor area, the rocks, and so on. And um, yeah, so they they worked in that area, and they also worked in Surrey Hills. They had a a mission centre in Surrey Hills. Right, and in those years, I suppose Australia is still a very developing. Yeah. country yes and in that time there's different communities vying for position and status and power i suppose one of a better word yet it was able to maintain that that non-conformist everyone welcome type of attitude yes yeah, so I'm, we may be um, glamorizing it a little bit right. uh, we're not too <laughs> sure of exactly how inclusive and welcoming it was right. in the past. Although, you know, like it's, they used to get huge crowd, like 2,000 people on a Sunday night Wow! in the 20s and 30s. So, uh, you know, it would have to be a pretty diverse crowd yeah. who were coming. Um, but we, uh, I think we've kind of really emphasised that uh, inclusiveness. So it's always been strongly inclusive of lesbian and gay people in the community and it led the way in the Uniting Church for accepting lesbian and gays into the ministry and there are numerous, uh, well of course our minister here is uh, is a lesbian at the moment yeah. um, uh, and so there are lots of people in, in uh, leadership positions in the wider church and in this church who come from uh, sort of those traditions, those yes. backgrounds, yeah, backgrounds that other other groups might they they might not be so welcome in that those other groups. Absolutely, but. because a lot of people came here because the churches they were in um, rejected them. So actually, quite a lot of Catholics and Anglicans have come here, right? And we still have you know people from those backgrounds, yeah. I would say I wouldn't want to overemphasize the lesbian and gay element because it's really maybe at most a third of the congregation, if that. But it has always been a strong issue in the well, since I've been here in from the eighties, from the early eighties. Well, I suppose that's that's been sort of the social issue of the past it has. 40 years. And so it's it, probably look, not it, surprising. It took a lot of campaigning within the church to get where we are today. Mm. I was involved in, um, uh, in Uniting Network uh, from way back in, in the early 80s that was um, lobbying, working within the church, going to uh, discussion groups, visiting congregations and so on, sort of promoting the acceptance of lesbian and gay people. Has, have you found or has there been in the church's history um, any elements of disagreement between sort of ideas or doctrines because I suppose if you have a church that is very open, mm. um, within that 
openness there is to the potential for disagreements to arise. This is true, but um, within this congregation, I don't think they've, uh, in my sort of 30 plus years, uh, I've never known uh, a serious doctrinal kind of issue. In the wider Uniting Church, there certainly are congregations that, that don't accept lesbian and gays and so on, and um, you know they kind of have a bit of an organisation of their own. And so, and so, what's your role here? Well, my role, I'm I'm on the executive of the uh, the church council, and um, I'm involved in a number of ways. I'm um, on the worship committee. I'm one of the pastoral care coordinators. Um, and I'm very involved in the interfaith activities in the church. Right, so, so you're, you're very involved with the whole church. Keeps me busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm on the, in the wider church, I'm on the Relations with Other Faiths Committee of the Synod. Oh. So we have regular um, visits to um, uh, other faith groups and uh, we have ongoing dialogue with the Jewish community. I'm on the Council of Christians and Jews. I was the president of that for a time and so on. So, you know, they, these have sort of ramifications in, into the wider community. And when you're going to those other, those other Christian communities and I suppose more so those other, those other faiths, yeah. uh, what's, the, what's the sort of reception that you're getting from them. Well, usually it's terrific because we go there to um, to find out about their their beliefs, their their uh, practices, and so on. So it's a very we go in a very open way to meet and to learn and to find out about what they're doing and maybe to share a bit of who we are as well. So this year we had a beautiful trip to the uh, the Sikh. Gurdwara, which I think is Glenhaven, somewhere like that. Um, there was just another visit to a Coptic church at Kellyville. So, uh, I mean, I'm coming from a position which just recognises spiritual practice uh, across a whole range of uh, communities. And when you get to the level of working with spirituality, the actual divisions are not so important. It's the connecting with spirit. Um, actually, very early on, I read a little booklet written by Krishnamurti, who had been picked up by the um, Theosophical Society. And Krishnamurti basically said in this in this little booklet, that um, you know the the uh, the dogmas of the different faiths are really irrelevant. And he said the the only the only difference is between those who know and those who don't know, <laughs> <laughs> or those who have a sense of the spirit and those who don't. And sometimes when people are very dogmatically committed to their faith, they have absolutely no sense of the spirit and the spirit that connects all people, and so on. You know, we're, we're all 
um, spiritual beings. And, you know, I love that um, Hindu greeting of Namaste. And I know that um, the spirit in me greets the spirit in you and so on. Whereas, you know, for some people, you know, you're in the in crowd. And if you're not in the in crowd, you're going to hell and so on. And, you know, like it's almost like you just disregard those people altogether, which is not, I don't think, a Christian attitude. Because I think Christ, I personally believe that Christ is present in all people. You know, and what Christ didn't come to start a new religion. He, he came to show the way. And his way was inclusive, was kind of recognising people and showing people, you know, um, how to pray and, um, you know, how to connect with each other and to accept each other. Not, you know, we're separate, we're better, you know, you're not acceptable. That's not the Christian, that's not the way Christ kind of operated in the world. And, you know, I think he, I think Christ has um, connected with the earth and with all its people. Christ is a great cosmic being and he is present in the world now. And when you're coming out of that kind of perception, then everybody is valuable, everybody's important. It's you, you. You mentioned Krishnamurti, who, as you said, was picked up by the Theosophists. Yeah. Um, and my understanding of it is that they had almost earmarked him as a reincarnation of Christ. Christ. Yes. Um, and had sort of said that this 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 child, when he still was a child, will will grow to be the reincarnation of Christ. Um, and then he got to a stage in his spiritual development and he completely disavowed and rejected that position. Yes. yes. Which is interesting in line with what you're saying because mm. if Christ, I suppose, was to come back, he wouldn't, he almost wouldn't want to be recognized as the Christ because it's not, it's not follow me, it's come and be part of. But how can Christ come back when he's never gone? Christ is present. He said, I am with you always. So, you see, I think this whole notion of the judgment day and Christ coming back is a projection of the early church. So, you know, the disciples originally thought Jesus was going to lead a rebellion against the Romans and it took a long time for them to kind of realise, well, that's not what it's all about. And then it was kind of projected into the future. Oh, well, you know, Christ is going to come back and then he's going to punish everybody for what's going And I think that is, again, another misinterpretation and that, you know, that there was a misunderstanding of, um, well, it was a projection of their own hopes and desires for this Messiah figure to come back and kind of rule the earth and punish those who need to be punished and and whatever and and so but that actually I don't think that's the gospel I don't think that's part of the gospel 
It's a kind of new projection of the Messiah kind of figure, which Jesus was not kind of working that way. Jesus worked by transforming from within. He didn't come and condemn people and tell them that they're sinners and they're doing wrong. He came and he accepted them and he met them where they were. And that was a transformative experience. And they changed, you know, and we've got the classic story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He didn't sort of say, why are you collecting taxes for the Romans? You know, you shouldn't be doing this. No, he accepted. He said, I'm going to come and eat with you and so on. And this was a transform, this transformed him from within. And he changed his whole way of thinking because of that. That's the way Christ works. You know, the, um, uh, this, this, this sort of projection of the, the, um, the powerful ruler, you know, and so on, is just a, a complete mistake. And the idea that Jesus, well, the Christ, was going to come back and uh, inhabit Krishnamurti's body, I mean, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. But Krishnamurti realised that. And then he went on to be a terrific teacher. He was a profound teacher. Which almost gives uh, credit to his teachings. Because yes. The, the whole scenario was there for him to just walk into and become this, this reincarnation of Christ, according to. And what a, a huge ego trip it would be. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, and, and, you know, what a disaster it would be. Mm. Because it just wouldn't work, you know. Yeah. So there's, you know, there, I think once again there is this fundamental misconception of how the Christ works. The Christ is a cosmic being, you know, a profound spiritual being. There was a time he spent in a physical body. He came to the earth and spent time in this physical body. But uh, his work is not in the physical body. His, his work is in the human heart. And yeah. that's where it has to, you know, that's where it has to happen. You know, I mean, I think what is very clear is that the Christian church lost the true gospel. Because, you know, what Christ was bringing was a sense of inclus inclusiveness, of equality, the early church shared things in common. They, you know, um, they sold all their things and they, they lived together and they worked together. The, the gospel message is actually about creating a fairer world, a world that isn't dominated by powerful figures and by, uh, you know, institutions and so on. And the church, when it became part of the, the Roman Empire, when it became the established church of the Roman Empire, protected and defended the, um, the inequalities, we could say, you know, the, um, the power systems. It became caught up in the power systems of the Roman Empire. So uh, I think that's where it kind of lost the real direction. So uh, I just think that 
in the wider community today, people just aren't buying it. You know, they're, they're, they're rejecting religion because of that kind of uh, limitation through dogma. I do remember um, many years ago when I was being brought up in the, in the Baptist church, we had a visit from some missionaries who were working in Papua New Guinea. And they, they said, oh, you know, it took us a very long time to get the message through to the local people that they were sinners and that they needed to be saved. And, you know, they, they were spending a lot of time uh, telling these people, you know, that they were no good, that they were sinners and they needed to repent. And you kind of think, you know, is that the Christian message? Is somehow it got a bit twisted along the way? Yeah, well, it's a very uh, it's not it's not a message that you would readily accept. I don't think people in the wider community would accept it today. They don't see it in those terms. But of course, you know, which isn't to say that we're all imperfect and we're on a journey and we're all trying to develop and, and improve. So, so you came from the Baptist church, but you obviously left and then... I did. ...eventually came here. Can, yeah. you, can you tell me a little yeah, bit well, about Yeah, well, I totally that? rejected Christianity for a time in my early 20s. Right. I became an atheist. I sort of kind of got to the point, like, look, I've just got to reject all the the um, the dogmatic teaching and the, the literal interpretations and so on. I just intellectually couldn't accept it anymore. And, you know, a lot of that was to do with coming to terms with being gay and knowing that in that particular context I was not acceptable. Yeah. So I had to kind of, I had to uh, reject it in order to really explore and discover who I genuinely, truly was. And then, of course, I learnt that I could be a sexual being as well as a spiritual being, you know, and we all are. We, we have our sexual dimension and we have our spiritual dimension. And for some people, you know, they kind of, uh, ignore the spiritual and play it down. I think it's been a big shame that the church has taught in the past in a way that sex was bad um, and that, you, you know, it's better to do without it and that sort of thing. So that, so coming to terms with who you were as a person was sort of opposing itself to the community that you were a part of. Mm. Yeah, it was hard in a sense to reject that community. Yeah. It had been it had been quite a I mean I'd given a lot in that community and I'd also received a lot in that community. And but um I I couldn't stay within it. I couldn't continue within that anymore. And uh in in some ways I'm sad about that, but I, I guess that, that this happens for a lot of people, mm. that they have to kind of leave behind the limitations of a particular um, approach. Yeah, well, 
uh, Father Richard Raw, who's mm. an American priest, talks has that mm. uh, writes that book, Falling Upwards, and he says that there's that first sort of stage of spiritual development when you're young, and then you really need to move on from that sort of almost intellectual level to the to a higher spiritual level, which I suppose, but that like that often comes with with trip ups and and falls along the way mm. to to mm. eventually get there. But I'm very aware that in those those years when I was sort of doing going to Sunday school and then teaching in Sunday school and that sort of thing, that I definitely did have a sense of the presence of God. You know, there there was a tangible sense of presence. And that, to me, is really a crucial part of religion. Uh, if if there isn't a sense of the presence, then you know uh, any practice is is kind of worthless. And what at that time was that presence to you? It was usually personal prayer. That was where I would experience it. And it was just this this sort of loving. Like what, what? What were you sort of feeling yeah. when you yeah, when you yeah, would do yeah. that? Yeah, I think connection. Yeah, I think it was about connection, which is interesting. On the one level, you're having that connection, but on in that sort of group, you're mm. you're struggling to find where you fit. Well, I I guess I realised that uh, you could find that connection outside. Well, even though I mean, I I don't. No, how long? I mean, I, I was really searching for spiritual connection, say, when I started going to the Theosophical Society and connecting there, like a different kind of spirituality. Right, so you went from the, the Baptist church and went and joined the Theosophical Society. Yeah, but that was later, like a few years later. Right. I think I spent a bit of time kind of exploring my sexuality and enjoying who I was. Yeah. 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 Exploring atheism. Yeah, yeah. It does kind of rejecting the whole deal. Yeah, yeah. But then gradually I kind of felt an inner kind of call to explore spirituality. And that's how I kind of connected. And then interestingly enough, at the um, Theosophical Society I went to a talk because they were tremendous in getting diverse people to come and talk about their spiritual journeys and and so on. And there was uh, there was a, a teacher from Glen Ean, Rudolf Steiner School, who came and gave a talk at the Theosophical Society, and that was really the first time I heard about Steiner education. And then, I uh, mean, many years later, I went on to become a Steiner teacher. So um, there was that connection. But actually, I connected with anthroposophy through a friend of the family. And, and anthroposophy is Steiner's... Philosophy. Philosophy, yes. which I suppose he's now most famous for his, his schools. Yeah. Um, but the schools sort of grew out of the philosophy that he developed through yes. anthroposophy. Well, it's all very relevant because Steiner was a theosophist and then he had a falling out 
with the theosophical leaders, with Annie Besant and uh, Ledbetter and and so on, over Krishnamurti. Yeah, wasn't it that he... Steiner sort of rejected the whole Krishnamurti idea. As uh, the, the fact that he was a reincarnation of yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Steiner couldn't go, go with it and he took the whole German section of the Theosophical Society with him. So that was that was a, a a big change, right? But he'd been lecturing in theosophical circles and whatever for for quite a few years. And so the going from for you going from the theosophical society to the anthroposophical society, yes, um, was sort of an easy. Well, step. that was a process. A process that was quite a process because um, actually we had this friend of the family who had been an actor, who'd worked with my father, who was also an actor. And and in fact, I'd worked with him in the theatre as well. But he'd gone to London, my friend or the friend of the family had gone to London and had discovered, had met Michael Chekhov, who was the nephew of Anton Chekhov, the great Russian writer, and uh, Michael Chekhov was doing these kind of um, anthroposophical drama classes. And he'd got involved in the drama classes and worked with Chekhov and so on. And then he'd gone to Switzerland and trained in anthroposophy and trained in um, working with disabled children and came back to Australia to start the first school for um, disabled children, uh, which is still going. It's um, Inala at um, Cherrybrook. Ah, right. So they set up this community at Inala, and Dennis was part of the founding group. But then he also, as well as doing that, he was involved in drama. And he decided to offer speech and drama classes at Rudolf Steiner House in the city. And he, of course, we had the connection through the family. He, he suggested that I might like to come to his drama classes, which I did. And then I started, and he said, oh, I'm doing a lecture on Tuesday nights. On a Tuesday night, come and hear my lecture about drama and Steiner and so on. So I started then going regularly to Tuesday night lectures at the Anthroposophical Society and, you know, became very involved. And then um, I knew that they had this teacher training program, this orientation course, and I kept thinking, oh, I'd love to do that, but I was teaching. And uh, eventually after I'd, I'd... taught for 15 years at Loretto Normanhurst. And um, I kind of thought, I think it's time for a change. And uh, I resigned. And then I thought, I'm, I'm going to go and do that orientation course and train as a Steiner teacher, which I did and then worked at Glen Ian. So it kind of went full circle. I'd heard first heard this teacher at the Theosophical Society. So, and I ended up teaching at that school mm. and being very involved in the society and in, and in the, the life of the school and in the spiritual life of the school. 
So what sort of drew you to the Anthroposophical Society? I I saw it as a pathway to the spirit. I saw it as uh, as another sort of very conscious pathway. There's a lot of... um, in the in the training in the spirit in the uh, the foundation year, we did a lot of inner development, inner training, inner exercise, and so on to develop the one's spiritual life. Things like that were also very much part of the uh, the teaching process. For instance, what they call the rukshaw, the the evening uh, reflection where you, uh, before you go to sleep at night in bed, you go over the day and you just think back, go backwards through the day at what happened and and are there any points that really, like, did you have an argument with somebody? Did you, and you sort of look objectively at what happened and then you try to sort of see the other person's point of view and whatever. Um, so that, and you you take that into sleep, and then other exercises as a teacher. For instance, you know I'm going to teach this particular main lesson tomorrow, and you take that content with you into the spiritual world. What what's a good way to approach this tomorrow? When you wake up, you take it into the spiritual world, and the spiritual world gives you some ideas. And in the morning when you wake up, you kind of think, oh, yeah, I can do it this way. I can do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can do this. And it becomes like working with the spiritual world is an integral part of the way you work. And, you know, it it helps to make your classes, your lessons enlivening and exciting and whatever. It's uh, so one's one's spiritual life is integral to one's work, to one's teaching. It sounds like, from what you're saying, that the spiritual life is quite um, uh, ascertainable. And if you just sort of direct your mind towards that sort of spiritual um, plane that you can that you can get there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I often... Because in my in my um, atheistic years, I read a lot of Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism, read books on existentialism and so on and so forth, which I found very engaging and, and terrific. And in a way, I, I started because they sort of say, you know, just get rid of all the preconceptions and start from scratch and build and find, make meaning for yourself, and so on. And I, I actually think that's quite a spiritual thing. But then, um, I've, since kind of returning to the spiritual life, I've never had any question, any doubt that the the spirit is alive and, you know, working within I've, I mean, the, it was a big breakthrough to understand, to get a conception of the God within, rather than God being up there in heaven and away. And, you know, how can I find God? And finding God within or the spirit within. 
that was fundamental. I think that that's really crucial. And then if you have the God within, you you know, the other sort of dogmatic things are not really important. You know, it's not, I don't need to sort of check, is this okay? You know, you could, because you're working out of a spiritual impulse. And that's that's what you, you get with um, anthroposophy in a sense. You, you have that spiritual impulse within you and you're working with it. And uh, you don't need somebody to tell you about it because you experience it, you live with it, you work with it on a daily basis and so on. It's very alive. And therefore, you know, I kind of... I find it a little bit hard when people say, oh, you know, I don't know whether there's a God. Or, you, know, and I, you know, where is God? How do you find God? You know, so within, just look within. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but somehow people make it a big deal. You know, where is you know, I can't believe in God. Who is God? What is God? Yeah. You know, don't even worry about God. Just worry about the spirit within. But it is a, it is a, uh, a challengingly simplistic idea yeah the the god within i suppose on the it, and the reason it may be challenging is because so many people have or so many ideas are based around the the notion that it's not within and to mm. gain a proper conception of god initially you you need to look up on the altar or or mm. wherever it mm. is mm. and so to sort of direct that viewpoint towards yourself while it sounds simple it can be quite um yeah difficult for some people well i think that's true i mean people do find that but um there's such a strong movement today for mindfulness and for meditation and so on, that somehow, uh, you know, people are finding this as the path, as a path to the spirit. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioning mindfulness because mindfulness isn't really a... It's not... Well, it's definitely not a religion. No, no, it's not. It's more of like a method. It's a technique. It's a method. Yeah, yeah, technique, yeah. Um, and my understanding of anthroposophy, and especially what Steiner was talking about, is that he didn't want to become a religion. He didn't want the society to develop into um, a religion with, I guess, dogmatic rules. Absolutely, and that's right. He was what he was really trying to do is just create a method where that spiritual world was. I I guess perceivable or examinable and yep. and an environment where people can sort of go to like find it I suppose well his his one of his main philosophical works is the philosophy of freedom that and was his one of his earlier ones yes yes and it's actually a path to inner freedom he was sort of saying if you know if if anthroposophy becomes a dogma, it's finished. It's dead. It's got to be a path to inner freedom. And, you know, for people find the spirit their own way. 
there are there are exercises and there are things that you can do, but it's it's your choice. And in fact, I've developed my own spiritual practice, which is quite different from a lot of what Steiner does. But um, you know, I work with Steiner's calendar of the soul, and I'm not sure what he intended for the calendar of the soul, but I found it extremely valuable to work with it, to take the verse for each week and work with it each day. And and what's what's the calendar of the soul? The calendar of the soul is a verse that Steiner gives for each week of the year. And it follows a process of expanding into the summer and contracting into the winter that one is drawn, one's spiritual life is drawn out into the world in the summer and then in the winter it kind of leads to an inwardness and so on. And these, the verses kind of follow that pattern. So, for instance, the the, um, verse for this week is the power of the senses increases in union with the creation of the gods. It reduces my force of thought to the dimness of a dream. If the divine being is to become one with my soul, my human thinking must be stilled and dimly live a dream existence. So this is a verse that's very relevant to the summer to the you know the 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 um, reaching out into the uh, the light there's a lot he a lot of the verses are about light and finding the spirit in the natural world finding um, the spirit at work in nature and so on and then finding the spirit in the winter within so there's this this process, which he would sort of say the year is like a breath of breathing out and breathing in. And, you know, our life is this breathing in and this breathing out. Anyway, I work with that that sense um, every each day working with that verse. Yeah, which is quite... that That's a very sort of meditative and... I suppose ultimately, I suppose I think it comes from th- those Hindu mythologies. Yeah. Of, um, mm. One of the Hindu mantras is just hamsa. It's just in out mm. of the breathing, and you just that's a re- like a very repetitive thing. And mm. Theosophy was quite influenced from those Eastern traditions. Indeed. But to my understanding, Steiner when he started working or developing the anthroposophical society mm. was bringing Christ into those sort of universalisms that the theosophy and those more sort of esoteric and Eastern religions were looking at. And is that, and I suppose that comes back to what you were talking about at the start of Christ as, as the universal Mm. being yes that is open and and accepting and welcoming of it well i kind of um, i accept that from steiner that the the christ is the spirit within but you can't really use that language 
with Hindus and Muslims and, and you know, you can't say Christ is within you, but, but you can say that, you know, you have the spirit within you and so on. But, you know, obviously Steiner, as well as um, Theosophists, was very influenced by Eastern religion. And he said that anthroposophy is a marrying of the wisdom of the East and the West. It's a marrying of the Eastern wisdom with Christian wisdom, with those practices. And of course, you know, reincarnation and karma are very much a part of Steiner's philosophy. And so then, yeah, so there's that like, coming together of the two yeah. ideas. So how, yeah. how, does he, how does he reconcile karma, I suppose, with the Christian idea of heaven? Well, in Steiner's perspective, there isn't a heaven and a hell. There's just a spiritual world. And we, we can experience a hell because when we die, we review our life as we review our day in the rookshaw each evening. And you go back over your life and you look at what you did. And Steiner says that you actually see situations from the other person's point of view. And if you've been mean and cruel to people, you experience that. And that's hell. You're getting back what you gave out. You're experiencing what they experienced. And the reason for doing that is that you learn. If I do this to other people, this is how they experience it. And, you know, what kind of, what kind of experience does a Hitler or a Stalin have in the spiritual world? You know, when they when they review, when, they, when they're doing their big review. And that review can take a very long time. That can be, not that, there are, not that there is exactly time in the spiritual world, but uh, I think he said it's at least a third of your human life that, the- that you take in reviewing the past. You do a very quick review when you're dying, just as you're dying, and then there's the longer review. You can like fast forward, you're sleeping or something. Yeah, like well, the thing is, when you're dying, you're coming out of the body and you're leaving your etheric forces, the life forces. It sort of says you're peeling the life forces off, and the life forces are uh, contain the memory. Your whole, the, you know, your all your memory. So you're you have this quick. You know, there's often this idea that your life flashes before you when you're dying. People have had that yeah. experience, and that's what that is. They're, they're, it's, they're, they're kind of loosening, releasing their etheric body, which normally when we go to sleep at night, our soul life, our spiritual life, our, what Steiner calls our astral body and our ego, our, our spiritual side go into the spiritual world and the physical body and the etheric body the life forces of the body are asleep in the bed but we're actually in the spiritual world does he does he also say that you can go up into that spiritual realm while you're while you're i suppose conscious or awake yes well that's what he did the, the a lot of the the uh, training 
that he gives is to be able to uh, go into the spiritual world consciously, uh, which is exactly, you know, Steiner was able to do what he did because he could go into the spiritual world consciously and um, read the, he could find things out, read the Akashic Record. People would ask him questions. He would go and come bring an answer back and so on. Wow. And that's how he developed uh, biodynamic agriculture and ways of working to bring spiritual forces into the agriculture and so on. So he was working by bringing spiritual impulses to the earth because he was an initiate. But then, you know, he talks a lot about the ancient initiates. People like Pythagoras was an initiate. He had a a mystery school. We had the mystery school of Eleusis in, you know, outside of Athens and so on. And the mystery schools taught this process of um, becoming conscious in the spiritual world. That was initiation, to be conscious in the spiritual world and to bring the uh, knowledge back. So, you know, Sinus sort of says, well, Anthroposophy is a mystery school for the modern world. And does, so does he say that uh, uh, us mere mortals are capable of, um, of, of having those experiences? Absolutely. People always have. You know, from uh, certainly the ancient Egyptians. They, how did they build the pyramids? Of course, they were getting spiritual impulses to know how to do it. And the incredible connection with the, the, um, the cosmos, with the, py- with the pyramids. And then something like Angkor Wat, which is a kind of uh, representation of a um, cal- galaxy or whatever. Uh, you know, there are all of these, the, like the, these mystery traditions in different cultures were bringing those impulses down. But that was when human humans were much more uh, kind of group soul, not so individual. You know, uh, as we gain more ego consciousness and we get more intellectual capacity, well, he said, you know, we lost the clairvoyant. In the ancient past, people were clairvoyant. They had... You know the um, the Mahabharata is is very much, um, and uh, Ramayana and so on have this sense of you know the characters um, are meeting with the gods, and so on. The and the same with the the Greek myths. There they were the Greeks were gaining that intellectual capacity. They were becoming. This is where evolution of consciousness is very important in Steiner's. Philosophy and seeing the change in the human condition with changing cultures bringing a different consciousness. Would he say that um, with the development of uh, technology and mm. those, those sort of advancements that have led mm. us away mm. from, I suppose, spiritual connections, mm. would he deem that as a, as a devolution or no, it's a natural progression because in the past, people were, I mean, clairvoyance 
was just a natural part of human life. And interestingly enough, that clairvoyance has lived on in certain areas much longer. For instance, you know, the Kalahari Bushmen have that kind of clairvoyance where they can sit down in a circle and they can tune in to each other, you know, hundreds of miles away and they can tune into the spiritual world. It's a sort of a, it's a very different consciousness. And he said, actually, that clairvoyant consciousness lasted longer in Ireland. And, you know, the, all the talk of leprechauns and things was a sort of a, a, a lingering kind of clairvoyant consciousness. But, you know, sort of he, he talks about different epochs, but he, he talks about the, this present post-Atlantean epoch, he actually calls it, begins with uh, the Indian uh, civilization, which uh, still had a great deal of clairvoyance. But for instance, you know, like Aboriginal culture goes way back before that. And, um, you know, I think Aboriginal consciousness, we, we, have, we could learn a lot from traditional Aboriginal culture, which we unfortunately have mostly destroyed. And, but they had this, this living consciousness of the earth and the spiritual world. And so it was a lot. It, it was a lot easier for them to. Well, that was natural. Yeah. It was just totally a natural connection with the spiritual world. They saw spiritual beings. They saw etheric beings, you know, elemental beings around them and in them. And so, have you? Have you? Through through your practice, I suppose, of of his techniques, have you? Um, have you found a development in your in your um, conscious being, and 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 have you sort of been able to get rid of some of the connections, I suppose, or some of that reliance on um, technology and over intellectualization? Um, well, I, I, it's hard to talk about one's where one is at. I mean, I kind of feel a strong connection to the spiritual world and I try to work with the spiritual world, but I'm not conscious in sleep in the spiritual world. I can, I can work with it, but I can take things into my sleep and, yeah. and find answers uh, or find ways of working with things, but I mean, I don't think I've, I haven't got to the point of being, you know, clairvoyant. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not a clairvoyant. (laughs) (laughs) But I do know people who are. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. But in, in doing that work, have you found, because Steiner seems to say that a way to get there is to sort of lose some of those um, technological attachments and those intellectual attachments. Well, look, not necessarily. In fact, there's a whole movement in anthroposophy today called moral technology, to work with technology in a moral sense and bring morality into the technology. Right. So it's not so much the... It's not opposing technology. No. Um, Anthroposophists are not opposing technology, although seeing danger, seeing certain impacts on consciousness 
from 5G and things like that. Whereas, you know, like you, you restore your um, etheric forces in the natural world. And that's, uh, I suppose, in the Steiner schools, that's sort of uh, what is encouraged the, the children to go out and, and play and learn through just getting their hands dirty. Yeah, learning through play. Very strong. But also another way of strengthening one's life forces, one's etheric forces, through the arts. You know, like music is a direct connection to the spiritual world. Uh, you know, real music, which is not technological music, but instruments. And you know, you can go to a concert and be uplifted and kind of come out feeling replenished and inspired and so on. So actually, um, he said for each of the mystery schools in the ancient world, um, an art form emerged. And through that art form, there, you know, instead of training for initiation, you know, this art form that helped humans connect to the spiritual world emerged was created right so with with that force developing there's sort of offshoots that that come in, in yeah. different manifestations of yeah. creativity yeah 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 wow because he um steiner himself wrote some music he was a, an architect you were saying before that he did agriculture like he was a, a serious oh absolutely polymer. well of course he there are anthroposophical doctors who work with Steiner's um, medical lectures and so on. So, I mean, he could, he could go and bring these impulses back in all sorts of ways. So he had a big influence on... Um, there, are, there are whole streams of art working with colour and so on. Um, there are techniques, there are very Steiner techniques in, with art working, you know, children learn with watercolour and so on and, uh, you know, various techniques like that. So uh, there's barely an aspect of modern life which is not influenced by Steiner. And, of course, people like um, um, Walter Burley Griffin was an anthropologist. He was an anthroposophist. Oh, and wow. particularly his wife, Marion Marnie Griffin, she was very involved. And so you you get very involved in the Anthroposophical Society. Yes. And you start doing the, these different practices. But through that, does your, does your history in the Baptist Church, does that sort of help with that development or is it... Well, look, I think... I think I don't look back on that negatively. That was, I was very privileged to have that spiritual community. It had a narrow thinking, but there was tremendous sense of community and caring and whatever. And that was very necessary in my life at that time. But I had to outgrow that. Yeah, right. But then you you ultimately come back to this Unitarian church here. And so there, there must still have been 
Well, it's about, I mean, for me, it is the church is about community. And it doesn't really matter what it, to me, it's important that it's a spiritual community, um, but that it, it is a caring community and that it has. Uh, another, another thing that I learnt in the orientation course that was very important, we had this very profound teacher who is now dead, um, who was a very, very advanced anthroposophist. And he said, it's no good having a truth unless you can use it. It's no good having knowledge unless you put it into practice, until, unless you can use it in some way. And this was very much, you know, Steiner wanted to, he had theories about society of how to work with economics and how to, uh, you know, improve agriculture and how to improve the arts and how to improve architecture and and work with music and so on. So everything had a practical kind of get out there and do it. Don't just talk about it. And that was one of the things that really appealed to me about anthroposophy because theosophists are beautiful and they're wonderful and they're very inclusive and they're very open, but there's not a lot of action. There's not a lot of doing. And therefore also, as, you know, as part of this church and I think as part of my spiritual practice, it's important to be involved in issues in the world, you know, to be involved in uh, environmental causes and issues and involved in humanitarian things like refugee action. And, um, you know, that's sort of, I see that both as a Christian and as an anthroposophist, that you've got to be very involved. I'm, I'm involved in politics and so on. It's a very busy life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rushing from one thing to another <laughs> all the time. Yeah. I don't know how I had time to work. <laughs> so but like both of them just give you this incredible like, motivation, I suppose. Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. There's so much to be done. Yeah. No, not this sitting back, philosophizing. Oh, you know, what, yeah, is this look at right? Us, is this wrong? You know, is that the truth? Yeah, or, you're right. Uh, I should really pack up these microphones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's about kind of, well, this is fundamental to Steiner education. It's about thinking, feeling, doing, willing. So, you know, the young child, it's all about doing. It's about the will and activating the will to do things. And then children need to be working with their feeling life, developing their feeling life, and finding, finding goodness and, um, and beauty in their feeling life, and so on. And then in adolescence, it's the real focus on the intellect. But you know, Steiner education is thinking, feeling, doing, or doing, feeling, thinking. And that's a balanced life. And that's where you have the ideals of goodness, beauty, and truth. Goodness in what you do, beauty in the feeling life, truth in the thinking life. So, so often in the past, education has been about the thinking 
you know, it's all about knowledge, learning things, as opposed to, you know, this developing the feeling life of students as well. I think we have a lot of empty, hollow people wandering around, you know, uh, because their feeling life has not been developed. They haven't experienced beauty. They've experienced ugliness. They, you know, they see beauty, but they don't appreciate it. They don't, they haven't learnt to, to find the beauty, to appreciate it in the world around them, in the arts and so on. And they substitute real music for kind of head-banging, kind of, you know, um, uh, thumping, which actually isn't music. These are very negative forces at work in our world. You know, there are, Steiner talks about, um, the, well, the, he, he sort of describes three kind of spiritual forces one is Lucifer, which is the light bearer, light. Um, but it's all about, you know, um, uh, just get lost in the thinking, get lost in all of the you know, philosophical ideas and, you know, whatever. And then there's the Christ, who's very alive in the feeling world in the, and the thinking and so on. And then the third figure is Ahriman, who is the materialist who's trying to kind of make you more and more materialistic. So uh, we actually need all three. You know, Lucifer is really the spiritual force. It you know, wants you to just get lost in the spirit and not worry about the world. And Christ is balancing these forces of the spiritual world and the physical material world. So the aromantic forces are just wanting people to be totally materialistic, physical, in the physical world. But we actually need that. We need those aromantic forces to bring us to earth, to incarnate, to come into the world. But then Ahriman wants you to kind of completely kind of ignore the Christ, ignore the Luciferic spiritual kind of forces. That's interesting because Lucifer in, I suppose, at least popular understanding is, is the devil. Is the devil. And also uh, Ariman well, is... Lucifer was the spirit of light in the, in the uh, mythology. Well, it's the <gasps> mythology, the Christian mythology. Yeah. He was, and he sort of uh, lusted after God, you know, to replace God. Yeah, well, he was the chosen angel who... Yes, who rebelled. flew too high. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then you see, that is, that is the Luciferic impulse. It's the... Um, it's egotism. It's also kind of egotistical and so on. And, um, uh, you know... Don't worry about the physical world. Just come into the spiritual world. Just kind of be in the spirit. Well, if we're physical beings in the physical world, we've got to control. We've got that's got to be balanced, and the Christ balances that with the physical material. So you know, a lot of the exercises we do with the students would be, you know, feel your feet firmly on the ground. 
Feel your head in the air and feel your own inner centre. And the Christ is in that inner centre. Now, don't get too lost in your thinking. You know how people can kind of get kind of totally lost uh, with all these thoughts buzzing around in their head and not, you know, and so on. And that's often in a psychosis. Yeah. Whereas Christ is this inner sort of centering, this balancing, this that that in that sense, the Christ within is this spiritual force, right? Bringing those, bringing that materialism of Ariman, yeah, with, with that egoistic spiritualism of Lucifer into yeah. a combined holistic, into a balance, into a into a workable balance. Yeah, yeah. And in a sense, you see, um, Lucifer and Ariman are not evil. Yes. It's only, it's only in the extreme. In the extreme. So when they're balanced, they they are doing important. You know, they're, they're important forces. Well, you could sort of see these as kind of just representations of forces at work. Yeah, which in is in the world, which is interesting because Lucifer is the devil, I suppose, in Christian mm. understanding. Ariman is the devil in. Zoroastrianism, yes. and so I suppose he's bringing those two mm. and saying they're not, they're not see, evil personified. Ariman is actually Satan. Satan is Ariman. Lucifer is not Satan. Yeah, Lucifer is. I mean, Satan is that figure. Yeah, that's why you know there's a there's a difference because in a sense Lucifer is drawing you away. And Ariman is pulling you down. Yeah. But they both have, uh, I suppose, useful... The human being needs them both. We need both. And it's in that nice centre ground where you find the holistic balance balance of the Christ. Absolutely, the Christ. And uh, Steiner did this famous sculpture of the Christ, which is in the Goetheanum in Dornach. Of, of Christ sort of um, pushing them away or, or holding kind of, them? Yeah, kind of holding them in balance. Yes. So I suppose we started saying that anthroposophy is not a religion, but mm. after that sort of conversation, there there is an element of its own independent. You don't have to theology. believe it. You don't have, I mean, he's not asking you to believe it. Right. It's more explanation. Yeah, but you know, you could be, you could be an anthroposophist, and I know people who are anthroposophical, who don't believe in reincarnation and karma. Right, they just follow those methods. But they like what Steiner has to bring. Yeah, and so, but they don't, they they don't, they're just not going there, with with those aspects. And they, you know, they can still be anthroposophists. They don't have to sign up. Yeah. <laughs> they can find value Sign your life in, away. in the techniques, in what he has to bring, in what he offers. I suppose that sits quite well with what the church does here at Pitt Street. Absolutely. I find no contradiction at all. And how, how did you come, uh, after doing that, that work at the Steiner schools and learning? It was all simultaneous. Right. 
So you came here at the same time as yeah, getting yeah. involved there. I, I mean, I started coming here in the early 80s and I started going to lectures in the early 80s. Right, right. Yeah, at the same time. Yeah. And so you, one was helping the other develop. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But once again, you know, what I found here in this community was a sense of community. Yeah. And, um, you know, belonging. And I suppose there's people coming here from different faith backgrounds. Absolutely. And so there's that sharing of ideas. It's a very mixed congregation, uh, you know, from other Christian traditions. We've got people here who are very involved in Buddhism. I know there are several who kind of have Buddhist, go to Buddhist groups and have yeah. uh, certainly involved in meditation processes and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I suppose Buddhism doesn't have its own independent God, so they can yeah. they can come and come and be a part of a, a community. There that... are so many different aspects of Buddhism and different traditions in Buddhism, and some of them do have gods. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, as I was saying before, you know, Shingon Buddhism that I that I experienced in Koyasan in Japan, it's very much, you know, it's esoteric Buddhism, and it has it has very much a sense of uh, you know spiritual hierarchies and gods and so on and so yeah. forth. You know that Shingon Buddhism, it's very esoteric. I mean, in a similar way, you know, the Aborigines have this incredible sense of the physical world being alive with spirit and and spiritual beings being all around us yeah and they're very they're very present yeah they they have a, a physical impact yeah in the way that they interact with what's around them yeah yeah it's so it's so interesting to see those sort of similarities that exist between Communities in Japan, the communities in Africa that you were talking yeah, about earlier, yeah, yeah. the Australian Aboriginal communities that all have that close connection. Well, it's part of the human evolutionary process, the evolution of consciousness. But as Jung said, you know, it's the collective consciousness. We can tune into the collective consciousness, which incorporates that whole history of development. But the more and more we become individualistic and intellectual, the more cut off we are from the spiritual world. That's why in that verse it sort of says, uh, you know, we have to uh, um, allow our human thinking to be stilled and dimly live a dream existence because in our dream, well, in our sleeping life, we're in the spiritual world. And we can bring that into the physical world. But on the other hand, Steiner at other times sort of says it's through our thoughts that we connect to the spiritual world as well. So, but it, uh, sort of almost like these are messages at different times of the year. You know, when you're really involved in this physical world, in the, in the um, delights of the senses, then... You know, you kind of, it's you, your thinking is a bit dimmed. When you can develop sense-free thinking, that's direct connection to the spiritual world.
Right, so shutting out the the five senses, I suppose, yes. that we know. Because yes. he because he saw thinking as a as a sense. Yeah, I think so. There are twelve senses. Steiner describes twelve senses. The sense of life, for instance, of being alive, and a whole lot of other senses which I'm not that clued yeah, into. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so if does does Steiner give a uh, projection or a prediction of where we're going, where humanity, oh, I yeah, suppose, is very going? Strong. Yeah, absolutely. Through epochs into the future, for instance, I haven't got the figures with me, but. You know, he sort of gives a, a time span for each culture period. You know, we're in a culture period, which you could sort of say is the um, Anglo-Saxon culture period. And he, he described as beginning in 1414, when in um, Italy you start to get, you know, the humanist movement and the the sense of perspective in art but it was a it was this age is the age of thinking of you know really developing ego consciousness and the thinking and then he sort of in 3000 and something the the it'll be much more of a slavic sort of focus center of consciousness and uh, you know humankind will have developed a very different will have developed more consciousness soul. Right, so does he see that as a as a good development? Oh or? yeah, well I mean this the evolving is everything where we have to go. Right, right. And Christ is present with us to help us evolve in the right direction. But undoubtedly um, not everybody's gonna get there. Yeah. Which I find a bit difficult. Yeah, but um, it, it's a it, it's a choice people make whether they want to or not, whether yes. they develop the consciousness or not. Yeah, but I suppose that that sort of goes a bit against what you said near about the inclusiveness. start about uh, yeah about an open inclusive. Well, it's open. It's definitely open. Right. Inclusive. Yeah. yeah. But it, but Steiner would say it gets to a stage where if you haven't contributed to your own conscious development, then yeah, look, I mean that's a bit that's a bit tricky. Yeah, because the human being, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of years yeah, of you evolution can't get your act together in into the future. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is that the physical world is going to fall away, that there will only be spirit in the future. And if you're only part of the physical world, if you're not developing the spiritual, how can you be in the spiritual world? You can only be in the physical world. But, you know, I mean, that's... I don't like going there. (laughs) Because the Christ is is with us, yeah. journeying with us. And the whole intention of the Christ coming was to help human evolution. Yeah, help us on the path. Yeah, to help us along the way. Yeah, yeah. The Christ is present with us to do that. Well, 
Joey, and that's probably a good place to <laughs> yeah. leave it on that positive note. Yeah, we've raved on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But quite a lot. <laughs> but it's been a fascinating conversation, oh. um, and very like yeah, amazing to go in. I mean, we've covered a lot. We've yeah. gone down numerous it's pathways. It's <laughs> very widely. Yes. Yeah, but it was but it was an amazing an amazing chat. So thank you very much for um, for taking the time to to just sit down. This afternoon, smoky outside, but yeah. uh, we're trying to illumine in here. Well, look, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to do it. Um, you know, one of my missions in the world is to promote spirituality. And I see this as promoting spirituality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose now it's up to me to, uh, to get it out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Joey, thank you very much. And uh, everyone, thanks for joining us. <laughs> And there are the cleaners. So that's probably a good time. Yep. (laughs) Thank you.